Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. And welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I am joined by Sarah from Canada. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Nice to be here today. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. Now, you reached out to me on Instagram um, a few weeks ago, um, which was really incredible. And you were just telling me the story about how you came across the Reclaim Me podcast. Do you mind retelling that story? Yeah, of course. Um, so I. I think a couple of weeks ago kind of was struggling um, with trying to find a space where I felt safe to talk about what had happened to me um, and, you know, didn't know that talking to friends or family was the way to go, um, but really wanting to be able to feel like there are other people who felt the same thing or who, who had gone through the same experiences or just somewhere to feel understood. And so I had Googled like, podcasts for survivors of sexual assault or something really like simple like that and um, had come across a bunch of recommendations including um, your podcast Um, and so I'd listened to a few and then ended up listening to all the previous episodes Um, and yeah started to be in this space where I think I've been in this space for a long time where I haven't yet been an advocate but I want to and internally kind of been like how do I do that and you know, how do I advocate if I'm not true about my story or haven't told anybody or, um, so definitely really new to the space of kind of sharing my story or like being a little bit more public about it. Um, but it felt like the right moment and also felt like the right time in my journey. So I reached out, um, just to chat and also, you know, if any, if, if nothing else, just create some sort of community for myself. Um, and here we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so um, glad, you know, I haven't had really anybody say that they've come across it on Google. Most people have been sent it by friends or word of mouth. So it's really cool for me to hear that. Um, but also I agree. I've been, I've been in that situation before where you're kind of like, I don't really know where I am in the space. Like I want to do good things. I don't know where I am on my healing journey I want to say more. I don't know how that looks. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a confusing space and trying to navigate being an advocate publicly. 
um, and maybe you're not wanting to share your specific story publicly as well is quite a difficult space to navigate too. Yeah. I think also I've um, been much more public about kind of my struggles with mental illness and, and it kind of always feels like the missing piece where people kind of ask, you know, where did this come? And like, you know, you seem like this perfect kid and you were great at school and you were great at sports and like, how did it all fall apart? And I'm always kind of like shrugging it off and being like, well, well, whatever, you know, like multiple factors lead to mental illness and that kind of like clinical definition (laughs) Um, when there's like this big secret in the back of everything. And it is true you know, but, and people are always looking for reasons because that which they don't have a complete picture of or a complete understanding of the mental illness or mental health concerns don't make sense. Um, And I think that goes to show the lack of information and the lack of awareness around even mental health issues. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we we are in a good space to talk about these things and to raise more awareness, more education, um, which is an exciting place to explore, I think, when we think about the impacts we can have on other people. Um, just by simply telling our stories and educating. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I had a similar kind of journey in terms of schooling. I, I definitely was like the science kid and was sure I was going to go into something math adjacent. And um, at the end of my college degree, before going into university, I um, my psychologist ended up saying like, why don't you go into psychology, Sarah? Like you have an interest and you keep asking me about these things about like how the brain works and um, and I did, and I, I did a degree in psychology, and now I'm finishing my PhD in clinical psychology, and um, just putting the pieces together for myself in in terms of how how my brain reacted to trauma and how brains react to trauma. I spent a lot of time thinking about you know post traumatic stress, um, and for me, kind of doing things empirically and um, being able to study you know s- study some of the things that happened, but as a science. Um, was really helpful. And then also understanding kind of the voice of survivors and all of this and the importance of having lived experience be part of curriculum and be part of the way people learn about about mental health and mental illness and crime. And um, I think it, it fits so differently. And now I, I work in nonprofit space, um, in the mental health space, and some of the most powerful and strong leaders in the organization are people who have personal lived experience with mental illness. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And being able to lead my team with, with the knowledge that my lived experience is contributing to something greater and helping, you know, helping young people across the country have access to mental health care. Um, because I've been able to kind of come through this lived experience has really meant kind of the world to me. Absolutely. And it's such a great thing that you're doing in such a great space and what an incredible achievement to be at the place that you're at, you know, and it goes to show that um, there is so much life after abuse um, and whether that be personal successes or career successes or in any way you can keep putting the one foot in front of the other and, you know, fighting for your own life. And that's an incredible space to be in. So good on you. That's, it's really, truly inspiring to see that you're in this space now and what you're doing here. Do you mind telling us a little bit about about your story? Where were you when when this when this occurred or when this started to happen? Yeah, it's, it's always a loaded question, but um, so I was the earliest I can recall um, being abused is when I was four years old. Um, I was at home and going to bed, you know, like every night, and 
And this person often, you know, came in and um, spent some time with me. And I was a really anxious kid and I'm still, you know, have lots of anxieties today, but um, was really kind of used to somebody coming in and kind of like rubbing my back and kind of helping me get to sleep. Um, And so um, that particular night or, you know, the night that I remember, I um, was lying in bed and, um, you know, he had come close to me and I, I felt some, you know, I felt something strange and he, um, now looking back, know that he had an erection, um, and, uh, ended up, you know, putting his fingers, um, under my pajamas and touching me. Um, and that, that is really kind of the first memory. I, you know, when I'm asked about it, I, I tell that as a first memory and I don't really know if it is, um, but that's the first that I remember. And I remember kind of the world changing afterwards and just the way I saw the world. And I think throughout my story, what's interesting and or interesting to me now is there are moments surrounding the abuse that I remember much more clear than I remember the abuse itself. But a lot of the pieces are foggy and I have, you know, different flashes of different moments, but the days after the weeks after I remember particularly well. And so, um, it's always interesting. I kind of have like markers. I have this picture of me playing soccer when I was four and I know that it was before then. And so I know that it's around then. Um, and that's the timeline kind of builds in my mind. And I think it's interesting. I've never really told the story in a like linear fashion. So I'm trying to put the pieces together in a way that makes sense. Um, but that was, that was the first time, um, I remember, and that went on for a couple a couple of years until I was in grade four, um, and so that is you know around ten years old. Um, and I don't you know I don't remember the particular circumstances, but I do have like a really vivid memory of coming back um, one day to the house and um, being taken to the master bedroom and um, being. Um, being raped for the first time. Um, and so, um, I, you know, again, don't, I remember it was incredibly painful and I, I remember that I was incredibly scared and there was a lot of physical abuse around this. Um, and so that was, you know, that, that's all I remember. I remember, you know, I remember the color of the bed sheets and I remember where it was and I remember the pain more than anything else and the confusion and not, you know, not knowing anything. And one of the things I guess, you know, I, I don't talk about a lot is kind of the feeling of love and care that I had for this person. And um, how does that fit in? You know, this person that I, I looked up to and I idolized and was maybe my favorite person in the world. And how do I reconcile, you know, how to reconcile these things? And is this, you know, is this happening everywhere? And, um, and so, you know, went, went back to school the next day and again, kind of remember really vividly the memory of the next day, just sitting at my desk and, um, looking at this purple dictionary on the side of my, my, my desk. And, um, again, kind of feeling like the world was ending around me, but also feeling like I, I didn't know, I did not have the vocabulary to talk about these things. We, these weren't things that we could talk about. Um, and I was also this great, kid who excelled at school and um who excelled in sports and you know was kind of the the perfect only child situation um and so um 
yeah, that that went on for for a couple of years. Um, probably. And who who was this person to you? Is this a, a family friend or a family member? It, yeah, it was a family member. Yeah, and I think that's the hardest thing as well. You know, I've spoken to so many other survivors too who. Um, you know, and this crosses into domestic abuse, this crosses into, um, yeah, family violence and being molested and things like this as well because more often than not these people are people that you know and people that you love and people that you trust and care for. So you've got this love for this person and then you've got this absolute feeling of um, hatred um, you know, your trust has been broken. You're not quite sure what happens and how it fits in. So you're trying to balance all of these feelings together, which, you know, um, one of the other survivors, when we were speaking the other day, she said she was just a scrambled egg. She goes, I don't know where I am. I was at one end most times and I was at the exact opposite end at the exact same time of love and hate um, and confusion. And I think it was a really great way to put it because, you know, how can we empathize with somebody? How can we, how can we explain the long-term effects of child sexual abuse? Um, and I think this is one of those things, you know, it's not just the act that is, it's the ongoing mental anguish that you're in as well. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, that time period was obviously difficult and, but arguably kind of when I came to understand what was going on was probably most difficult emotionally because I, I didn't know how to kind of reconcile potentially losing family and, you know, losing things that I loved and the normalcy that I had. And I think even now in, you know, in, in relationships like friendships or like romantic relationships, I, I struggle a lot and to, you know, to know the right boundaries and to understand what is appropriate because I think like the frame of reference is absolutely skewed. Um, and so try, you know, trying to, to put the pieces back together is something that, that will probably be the rest of my life. And, you know, I don't think it means that I will have a bad life or that um, I can't thrive, but it definitely kind of daily still has an impact on me, even in the way I, I interact with other people and the way I interact with myself. Absolutely. And that's completely understandable. Um, and you're right. I mean, it, it's not, you know, you don't have that frame of reference to go back to, to say this is this is what it is. But I think through these conversations and meeting other survivors and meeting people and constantly having these discussions, going to therapy, getting good therapy yourself, being one, like these are really important things to come to terms with. And to create tools and to create frameworks and boundaries for yourself. Um, and this is the healing space. And, you know, I was saying the other day, you don't reach this euphoric moment of being healed. I don't think that that exists. I don't think you're going to wake up one day and go, oh, hallelujah, I'm, I've reached the, I've been, I'm healed now. I have no more work to do. I think that you wake up one day and the adversity that you face is less daunting every day. That's how I would frame the healing side of things where when adversity comes your way, you can deal with it better, you can manage with it better, and you can get through the day much easier. You've got different tools, different things. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. You know, you're navigating this world in a space of healing from trauma and traumatic abuse throughout your life. And it's going to be a lifelong lesson, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be filled with love and happiness and, and new boundaries and new memories. 
Yeah, absolutely. I I think you're right. It, it, there was never one moment that I woke up and I was like, I'm going to be okay. But there are more days now that are bad, that are good than bad. And there's a certainty in me, I think, that I'm going to make it through or, you know, there'll be more to my life than than the abuse, which which I think is relatively new for me. Um, I don't think I always had that certainty that there would be life after abuse. I, I remember, you know, I remember thinking like this, you know, this is going to kill me. Like I, there is no way that I'm making it through alive. And so even that realization of, of waking up in the morning and being like, I have a life ahead of me is new. And, and that feels like a huge win. And, and maybe that is not compared to, you know, to other people. But for me, having that, that assurance that I'm going to make it through feels, feels huge. Yeah, absolutely. And I really relate to that feeling. I just remember one day waking up and not being suicidal that day. And that for Mm -hmm. me was a huge, like, yeah, I had value. I had a bit of purpose. Um, Mm -hmm. I felt like there was going to be life after abuse. And I, I had heard psychologists say that to me and I'd heard counselors like say back to me, it's not your fault, but Mm -hmm. it took me so long to get to a point where I truly believed that or where I saw that this wasn't going to define who I was. And that to me is one of the key memories that I do have of the last few years specifically where I woke up and I was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be okay. Yeah. I I also have, I have similar memories recently of just, I think I always have the feeling that like the people in my life will end up hurting me or will end up betraying me or um, you know, stemming from feeling that, that, you know, the person that I probably loved the most was betraying me in this way that I didn't know how to put into words. Um, and so recently kind of feeling like people who I consider family love me or, you know, the, the, the feeling of unconditional love or care was something that was foreign to me up until really recently. And discovering that, that somebody can love you in a, in a safe way was something that, you know, changed the way I saw the world. And you said before that you kind of came to conscious awareness really of what was happening. Was that around when you were about 10? Is that the age that you started to see or understand what was happening wasn't right? No, I think so. The kind of more violent um, abuse was really, you know, from 10 to 12 into the beginning of high school. So grade seven here. Um, And it's kind of a funny story of um, one day I was sitting in a classroom um, and we were watching a documentary about refugees. um, And these refugees were talking about, um, you know, experiences with sexual violence. And I was in an international program. And that, you know, that means we did a lot of work about understanding the world. And um, I remember sitting in that class and like having a sinking feeling in my stomach of listening to the the young girl talk on on the screen in the class and being like, oh my god, that's happening. That, that's what's happening to me. Like, <laughs> and not knowing and just being really kind of zoned out for the rest of the day and a few days, being like, okay, now I know it's not right because they've said it's not right, and now I have a word for it, and, and that word is not good. And and now what do I do? Um, so I think that was really kind of the moment that I, I realized that there was something that wasn't okay. Um, and what was that like navigating that space? Because I'm, I'm imagining that you were still being abused after the point where you've come to consciousness of the situation and the awareness. Like what was that like for you realizing that this wasn't misplaced love or that this wasn't something that you needed to 
possibly figure out or something like that, that you knew this was wrong? Yeah, I think those years, and it was, you know, a couple of years after I I had seen that in class that I ever told anybody. Um, And I think for me, it was a huge negotiation of, again, you know, what am I going to lose if I tell? Who am I going to hurt? What's going to happen to him? And really kind of led me down a spiral of of mental illness, of of self-harm, of of suicidality, because I didn't know that I, you know, for a while I thought I'm going to take this to my grave. There's no way I will ever have the courage to tell anybody. And a lot of it, I think, was shame. And as the the years kind of passed or the days passed and it, it happened and I felt like I was letting it happen and I knew it was wrong and I didn't know how to tell somebody. I didn't know how to make it stop. And and so I think I, ha- I have a lot of guilt around those years where I feel like I knew something bad was happening and still didn't know how to stop it or who to trust. Or And so I think that was the next kind of defining phase in my life was I know this is not okay and it's still happening and I don't know what to do about it. What was it like for you then to go through that space? Was who like when did you de- decide okay I'm gonna have to tell somebody what's happening and and who was that person yeah it's it's an interesting story I so around you know after the time I kind of realized what was going on um I I really fell into you know a spiral of of self-harm and of an eating disorder and an eating disorder that had prog- you know that progressed over the next couple of years and and so eventually a teacher at school um, had me go see, you know, the guidance counselor and the social worker at school because they had noticed that I had lost a lot of weight and that I wasn't okay. And, you know, I had, I wasn't myself and I was really operating kind of in a, in, you know, the body that was me, but I wasn't there, you know, I felt very robotic and trying to cut myself off from all the emotions and just kind of feeling numb for those couple of years. Um, and so went and, you know, was diagnosed at outpatient clinic with anorexia and still kind of fit the picture of like, I'm this high achieving kid. And so that fit, you know, that fits very much the picture of eating, you know, what we think about eating disorders of, oh, well, you know, she's just a perfectionist. And so that's why this, you know, that's why this happened. And anyways, the, that progressed, um, to the summer of when I was 15, um, I was working in a day camp and at the end of the day, one day, a social worker came and said, I need to speak to you. And I I learned later that the school had called youth protection and, um, you know, they were worried about me. Um, and so she told me, we have, we have to go to the hospital, um, right now. And I was, I was like, what do you mean right now? Like my mom's coming to pick me up. Like, I don't understand. And she was like, no, like you need to come with me. And so we went and was admitted in the emergency and, you know, my vital signs had tanked and I had, you know, lost a ton of weight and wasn't really eating at that time. And, And I think that's when everything really started to fall apart. Um, and so I kind of admitted to some of the abuse, the physical abuse and had said, you know, this is what's going on, you know, and I don't know what to do and got treatment, uh, spent, you know, a couple months in inpatient treatment for the eating disorder, eventually was let kind of into an outpatient space and um, didn't last very long and, you know, very much relapsed right away coming out. Um, Again, kind of, this is the only thing I knew how to control, you know, like everything was going wrong and I had control over one single thing and it was the food that I was eating. And so, if I could control what it went into my body, then then fine. Uh, and so they sent me to um, a group home because they didn't know if they wanted to send me back home, not knowing kind of the details of what was going on. And, and so did that a couple of times, kind of went in and out of the hospital. And, and one time I had an outpatient appointment and I was seeing the psychologist who I had a really, really good relationship with. She, she said something to me along the lines of, 
like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, you have so much potential and I don't understand, like, I can't get through to you. And I don't know what, like, you know, what took me in that moment. And I I just told her, I told, you know, I told her everything. I said, like, this is what's been happening. I, I, you know, and the same thing, this is the only thing I have control over my body. Like this, you know, um, and obviously kept me in the hospital that night. Um, and I remember calling one of the teachers who, you know, who had spent so much time advocating for me in school and trying to get me the help. And I refused. And I was, you know, I was the good kid in school. And I was also like the bad kid who run, you know, who ran away from the social workers and who didn't want to talk to anybody. And, um, and I called her that night and I had her phone number and I'm still so close to her today. Um, and called her and just said like, listen, you know, (laughs) you're right. Like, thank you for worrying. Um, I was, you know, I was sexually abused. I am, you know, still, and things just went from there. You know, things go really quickly, as you know, like police show up the next day and interviews and yeah. So that, that was, um, that was what I thought was the end. What did that feel like at that time? Like with your first disclosure, telling this psychologist and telling your teacher, what was that feeling like? Was it a feeling of like release and happiness and like to get finally get it off your shoulders or was the consequences of what you said, what you had said weighing heavily on your mind? I don't think there was any like happiness or relief at first. I think it took a long time before I got to that point. Yeah, I, was, I think I was terrified, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen next. I, I was scared that he was going to be mad. I was scared that, you know, my life was going to change yet again. And yeah, I think I was just like completely paralyzed with fear at that point. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you're still a child. Um, Navigating this space, this is a very grown up space. It's terrifying for a child. Plus seeing any authority like a doctor or a police officer and heavens forbid one that's in a uniform is a terrifying experience in and of itself because this is the ultimate authority you know, and you never want to get in trouble by the police. So what was the process for you like once you had disclosed when, when the police and everything came? Yeah, it's interesting. I, for a long time, haven't like, haven't shared this piece of the story because I, w- I was ashamed of kind of how I acted. But when the police came the next day, I was so scared. They, they, you know, they told me what happened and I said nothing. Like I said nothing. I said, no, no, she must've been mistaken. She must've mis- misheard me. Like, please, like, I don't want this. I'm not telling you about it. And like refused to speak and sat in that, you know, in that room for hours with two police officers in in uniform, you know, pressing me for questions and asking me the details. And, you know, I I was stubborn and um, did not talk to them. And eventually they left and they said, you know, like, well, we'll come back and you're in the hospital anyways. You're not going anywhere. I've spoken to survivors since who have also kind of lied to the police or whatever you want to call it um, in the first kind of encounter and heard that, you know, discovered that it's more common and kind of important for me to share that piece because it is, it's a terrifying experience to not know for yourself what this means and then having to tell what it feels like the world. I think it's okay if you don't get it right the first time and it doesn't take away the legitimacy of your story. Absolutely. It doesn't take away that. And um, I lied in my story. Definitely. I lied multiple times and I lied to different people. I lied and said, you know, I knew I didn't fully know, but I knew that this would impact him. And I knew that this would, I didn't have the care for him. I had the care for my friend and it was my friend's father. And I knew that I didn't want anything bad to happen to her. So 
I thought if I minimized it, then so I kept saying he might have, he might have, I'm just standing in front of a police officer, terrified, like eyes wide, freaking out. And I lied about that. And I, I do believe that when my court case went through, that's one of the reasons that they said that they would take the plea because my in inverted quotes, like my story had changed or that I had lied about it in the beginning. And I think that was, it was an interesting space to navigate and I felt guilty for lying and I was never open and honest about the fact that I did lie, but you're right. It's such an important space that we need to talk about because this is where people as well don't come forward and tell their stories because they might've lied in the past and that's okay. That's normal. It's fine. You know, the reasons for lying are plentiful, but there is always space to come forward and be honest with people that you love and trust. Yeah. I think the complexity too, especially like still as a child when you're you're doing this is there doesn't feel like a, there is a lot less autonomy than doing the reporting as an adult where I didn't feel what that took away from me was the safety to talk to my psychologist or to talk to the people around me because I felt like everything I was saying was being listened to or, uh, or that she was going to have to report it or, um, and if I wasn't ready for that, then there was nowhere for me to be. I completely understand the reasons why, you know, the system is the way it is. And there are things that I would love to change. But I think especially as a child going through that, there is no space for your autonomy or your decisions because because of the structures of the laws. Um, and that's something that I really struggled with was feeling like finally I've told somebody and I want to say more, but I can't because I, I don't want the police to come back or I don't want to have to face everything that's going to come with me telling the truth. So I just won't. And you know, Whereas, you know that that psychologist is, is a mandated reporter and you know that mm-hmm. they want the best for you. And you know that, you know, looking back now, of course, you know, and you would do the same thing in the, in that sense, you know, somebody does this, that that's your job. You have to look out for the safety of that child, but you're right from the child's perspective, they've got nobody in the world that they can trust still. And they've just made a disclosure. So how are we going to foster an environment where they can feel safe and comfortable when every time they say something, the police show up? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That must've been an incredibly difficult time in your life to, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I'm so sorry that, that you've had to go through this experience. Um, I'm grateful that you're here today talking about it because I think some of the things that you're talking about are really going to resonate with some people, um, especially around the child sexual abuse, because we know statistically speaking, these are the ones that that take the longest for people to come forwards and speak to about. So there was a study done in Canada and America, I believe the the average time for institutional child sexual abuse to come forward was uh, 30 years. I think in Australia, a recent study as well came forward and it was about 35 to 40 years on average. So we know that this is horrible to talk about, but letting people know that they're not alone, I think, will help so many people. Yeah, and it's definitely something that I I feel like the world has evolved so much in the last 10 years, you know, since I, I went through this myself, or I went through at least this first part myself. And but I think that there was no one who I could, you know, I had never seen it been spoken about in the media or openly and not having that frame of reference. I think 
made me feel like I wasn't the abnormal one or the one who was at fault or doing something wrong. And obviously there's tons of self-blame and self-doubt and all of this. Um, and so, you know, grateful in a sense for the Me Too movement and people who are who are speaking up about this because it, it happens so much more often than we think. And if people know that they can come forward and they can share their story, be it, you know, to end up being through going through the legal system or not, I think just to have that space for survivors is so important. And I think that's why, you know, this podcast and the work that survivors are doing themselves to create space for other survivors is so important. The police kind of were there and and you, you didn't disclose anything. Did you end up telling the police like what had happened or did you disclose to your other family or anything like that? Yeah. So I did and I didn't, I did enough um, to go through. So there's two kind of legal systems here. Um, there's kind of the youth court system and then the adult criminal court system. Um, and so um, the youth court system has a lower kind of burden of proof, I guess is the word I would use, um, where the it's like, what is the probability that a child returning to their home will be, you know, continue to be hurt, that their development will be compromised by returning to their home. Um, and so I shared enough to be able to go through that court system to be able to not return home, spent time with a really caring family, um, my best friend's family um, took me in for a little bit and um, had me stay with them, which is which is a really great experience. And I, you know, saved my life um, having those people in my life. Um, and so did that. And that was enough to kind of get me to the age of majority. Um, I moved out and started living on my own when I was 17 because I had the social worker who could help me do this. And there was always kind of the criminal case in the background. Um, but, uh, the focus for me was really, how do I get out? You know? And I remember one time, you know, I, I had lied and I said, nothing had happened, nothing had happened. And one day my social worker from youth protection took me into a room and said, listen, we're going to close your case. Like, is there anything you want to tell me? Like, we're going to return you to your home there. You're telling us nothing happened. There's no evidence. And I sat in that room for a really long time and I called my friend's parents and I said, can I come stay with you? I can't go home. Um, and when they said yes, I, I told the social worker, no, like I'm not, I, I, I didn't lie. I'm, I'm scared. And, but now I have a plan and I, you know, I, I like being in control of things. And so being like, no, I didn't lie, but I have a plan and I have somewhere to stay. So just like, please let me do this and I'll tell you the truth. And they did. And so I was able to go stay with that friend for a little bit more. And so ended up really doing the bare minimum to be able to, to, to be out of the house. But um, not giving kind of the sufficient evidence, knowing knowing what the kind of what was required for a criminal conviction, um, kind of played with those laws a little bit, which I don't know how I did when I was 15, 16, 17, but. Yeah. So you kind of knew you could say X, Y, and Z without saying the whole story. Yeah. Did you feel that now looking back on that, do you feel guilt or anything around that? Or are you more, I, I listened to that and think, um, obviously you said that you're into science and you're into maths and you're a very good student. You can, you sound to me like an incredibly intelligent young woman who has this knowledge and awareness of the space around her to be able to do that. But for yourself, like, what was it like navigating that at that age? Uh, I think the calculation in my mind was also the level of violence that was around was, you know, pretty significant. And there were important threats made to me around, 
if you ever tell somebody I'm going to kill you. And and so there was that too in the back of my mind of this is how I'm going to keep myself safe and not not trusting in the systems around me to keep me safe. And so I'm going to do it for myself. And I think now I look back at it and there are parts of me that wish that it went differently. And there are parts of me that, that understand that this is what kept me alive. You know, like I made those choices in my mind because I knew he wouldn't be mad if I, if I lied to protect him. And if I could get away, then, then it's okay. You know, what I wanted, even if I, you know, even on the days that I wanted to die, there was a part of me that wanted to survive. And so kind of navigating that line between how do I lie enough for him to leave me alone was part of it. And I think yeah. I don't regret it because it's it's what's kept me alive, I think. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Absolutely, and it's the key in that moment for you is safety, personal safety and security. You're, you don't care about a conviction. That's not what you want right now. You just want to be away from the hands of this person who's been abusing you. You want to feel safe. You want to feel secure. And that's your ultimate goal. And, you know, by, by being able to move into this place, you've got that. And that's an incredible thing that, you know, I'm, you must be so grateful for them. I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for so many families that take in children who are troubled or who have gone through things like this and they make them feel safe again. Like that's such a, you can never replace that with a conviction. You know, that's, that feeling of safety for a child means so much more. I mean, being able to be with that family changed changed my life. 
Um, and I wouldn't trade a conviction or I wouldn't trade anything for that, for the love and care that I have for them, for, for the family that I've created with them, for the support and for feeling, you know, for learning to feel loved and cared about again. I, there, there's nothing that I would change about my story that would change them being in my life. So once you were able to get into like this person's house, did you, were you able to go back to school and able to go back to things like that? Yeah. So I, I was able to go back to school. Luckily they lived kind of in the same school district. And even when I was in different foster, you know, group homes, I was one of the top priorities for me was to stay in that school district because I had these, you know, these teachers who I trusted and who, who were supportive of me. Those years were a lot of bouncing around from, for me, um, you know, from the hospital to a group home, from a group home back to their house, back to the hospital. And, just so much chaos, not being able to to take care of myself or not fighting for, you know, not fighting for my physical health at that point. So, but I did, I was able to finish um, high school on time with, with the rest of my class and was able to move on to college, which is, which is huge for me. Um, That's really incredible. I think to look back on your life and say, even in the face of such adversity, I was able to make something of it. So moving between homes, um, changes in rules, changes in caregivers, you know, the environmental change, having to be completely nomadic, never being able to put roots down. These are all really difficult things to navigate for any person, let alone a child, um, mm-hmm. and let alone somebody who has to go to school every day and make friends and learn and learn about things that we don't want to bloody learn about. <laughs> you know, not every subject is fun at school. So, you know, I can't, you know, I think you, looking back on that, you should be so proud of yourself to, to look back and say that, you know, you did that. Nobody else did that, but you, you put yourself first and you had the, the wherewithal and everything to put yourself first. And that's an incredible, incredible achievement. Yeah. Luckily I, I, school was always, I think through all of this kind of an escape for me, you know, I, I love to read and I love to be like deep in, in my textbooks and, um, even when I was in the hospital, my my best friend who I ended up living with um, would call me after school every day and tell me what the homework was and tell me what pages were assigned. And um, <laughs> I would sit at my bed in the hospital and do the homework. And the doctors were like, what is, like, what are you doing? Um, it just kept me grounded, you know, like some sort of normalcy. You know, I knew that I was keeping up with the kids my age and I taught myself math and physics, um, you know, for much of my last year of high school. And yeah, it really was just something to keep me grounded and something that was like absolutely normal and going and, you know, stressing about my physics exam was just, just like every other kid and Mm. uh, something I could talk to the other kids about because I had all these, you know, all the other kids knew something was going on, you know, who is this person who was missing copious amounts of school and is coming and being pulled out by social workers and people knew that there was something wrong and people could see that there was something wrong and um, and so being able to go and just be like, oh, what do you think about question five on the physics test was something that kept me relatively normal. And, you know, I could connect with people. Mm. Um, so school was, school was important in that way. And luckily it kind of came easy to me. So it felt like somewhere where I could thrive despite the chaos everywhere else. Yeah. And maybe like another thing, like you said before, with your eating disorder, um, about having control over something, you know, your education and reading a book is something that you had now control over. So that might be another way that it was helping you in some way. Yeah, I think it was tough knowing kind of, or not knowing at that point, like 
how am I going to pay to go to school? You know, like how suddenly I've just lost everything, you know, in my life. And so I think it was also important for me to think about like keeping good, this is in the back of my mind, but like keeping good grades for scholarships and those sorts of things. And like trying to figure out a way for myself to be able to keep going to school somewhere that I felt safe. Yeah. Um, And so I think, yeah, absolutely a combination of something that I could also excel at, you know, and in a weird twisted way, the eating disorder was something I excelled at, you know, I could, I could strive to be the sickest and um, I could be the thinnest and that's messed up when you think about it. But um, that, that was very much how I saw the world at that point. Um, And so school was something else where I could just be the best, but it was less harmful. And yeah, it does make sense. I think in, 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 in a way it does really make sense. You can see where those linkages have been made and you can see where that is something that you feel like you have control over and yeah, you're the best at it. That's a really good way of looking at it. I think, um, and a validating way to look at it, that that's what, what your experience was and why you were doing what you were doing, um, whether it be harmful or not after like every, you've gone through all of this. What was there in the end, any kind of court case that ended up happening? Um, so like it, is it like I'm trying to think about what that story is and paint that picture for the people listening. Is it, you know, you've been removed, you never went home, you've gone through the um, placements in group homes, placements in foster care, placements with your friend's family um, and trying to live your life and go, get to normalcy but concurrently and in parallel at the same time there's this case going on behind the scenes um, that the police and things are working through? Yeah, so there are two really separate things. There is youth, like kind of youth justice system or youth care system that ends when you're 18. And there is the criminal case. I hadn't provided kind of enough at that point to be able to prosecute in a criminal case. And so there, at that point, there wasn't, ha- there wasn't anything kind of happening besides appearances every couple of months in like the youth courts um, to be able to live independently and, um, you know, continue determining that I, I didn't have to return home until I turned 18. And so that was, that, that, piece of the story was kind of closed for the time being. In that period of time, did the youth place, the youth court, did they give you protection as well from from your family? Like were, was there protection orders and things in place so that they weren't allowed to contact you, et cetera? There were, yeah. And what was that like? Like was that the rest of your family too? So obviously it's not just the perpetrator but the, the family members around this person. Yeah, I – so it was, I, I really kind of did not have contact with anybody um, in my family, you know, secretly at some points reached out to my mom um, and, you know, went, went to see her at one point when I, I wasn't allowed or shouldn't have, or she shouldn't have been seeing me. And I hadn't really had the opportunity to kind of see her face to face in a non, you know, justice system setting to tell her what I wanted to tell her, tell her my story. And so I did, and that was a really difficult conversation. And I don't think I got the support that I would have wanted, or I don't think she was able at that time to provide the support that I needed. And so I, I distanced myself from from her and um, from the whole family, and try not to look back, mostly for myself. And so there were, you know, there were restraining orders and those sorts of things um, that went up until I was eighteen. So in one way, it's kind of, you know, a bit of a good thing that you you've got this. You don't have to be consistently pulled back. You can kind of take a step forward or away from it. Um, but that must have been so hard. Like, 
like you said, your fears around reporting kind of did come true. You're going to lose your family. You're going to, but you also at the same time, I guess, gained a new one. Yeah. I don't know that I saw it exactly like that at the time. Uh, I definitely do now, but it was tough. I felt extremely guilty to be taking a place, what felt like taking a place in somebody's family and felt guilty for the money they they spent on food for me and felt guilty about, you know, money that they would pay for the house that I had to live in and just so much guilt. And that, I think that's why I left. You know, I stayed for a couple of months with them and, and, and left. And I don't think I was necessarily ready to live on my own, but I just was so guilty about taking up space in somebody's life that, um, that I did go. Um, and so that I think that was really hard and still is really hard to navigate creating space for myself when it feels like I'm, I'm stealing somebody's space or I'm, I don't belong in it. It's absolutely not the way they make me feel, but the way I feel within myself. Yeah, it, de- it definitely does make sense. You know, even even something so small as going over to a friend's house and then buying you dinner or something. You know, even when I would go and do sleepovers at my friend's house and their parents would buy me Maccas or something, you know, I'd feel guilty in that. And that's just one sleepover. So I can really empathize with how that would feel because you just don't want, it's not your family. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely been a kind of a process to be able to to not feel guilty. And you've come through this now. You've into university. You're now studying your PhD. Um, what's you know when you look back, how how do you feel when you look back at the moment? Like coming to this point where maybe you know you're talking about it a little bit more. You're entering this space now. We've been able to study to study the psychology behind trauma to study the the effects that these things can have on people and to really truly understand the back end of it? That's a good question. I I feel like I've come to, to terms or feel at peace or whatever, you I don't know, whatever expression kind of works. Um, I think one of the things that I still kind of struggle with, um, you know, shortly, shortly after I kind of things had settled, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so there are days where it absolutely feels like it's still happening, you know, I I wake up in the middle of the night with nightmares and I feel like it's happening and it feels like the reality and it feels like it was yesterday and, and there are days where I'm fine, but I think I've struggled a lot with, you know, it's been X amount of years or how come you're not over it? Or, and so while I I do think I'm, I'm doing well for myself and I've created this life for myself now, there are days where I don't understand how prominent, like how much space it takes in my life. It's one thing to study it and, you know, to work with victims and survivors and, and be there for them and tell them, you know, it will take a lifetime or it will never truly go away. Uh, But not like giving that same empathy to yourself is, is something that is really difficult. Um, and I don't think I have truly kind of found the right combination of, you know, to create space to grieve for the childhood that I would have wanted or um, the family I would have wanted. Absolutely. And we were just saying before we started recording as well, how it can be, you know, wanting to actually talk to the people that you love about these things and feeling like, you know, people might think things like that, like, why aren't you over this by now? This was so long ago. You were a child, you're an adult now you study this, you know, to navigate your mind, telling yourself these, these things. Um, and for me, I feel like that still, I feel like this, um, about telling my story. I feel like this frequently that people are going to kind of say, I'm over it or stop talking about it. Or my parents will turn around and just be sick of it or something. And, Um, And I think that this is the space that I really love with other survivors is I don't really talk to my friends or my family about my situation anymore 
because I have a group of survivors who truly understand and who give me my space and I don't feel like that with because I give them their space too. It's kind of, you feel less guilty because it's not one-sided. So that's how I've been able to deal with that feeling. But yeah, what what's it been like for you to navigate that now? Because I guess, yeah, you're still feeling that sometimes, even with the study and even with talking to other people. Yeah, I definitely kind of feel the awkwardness sometimes of bringing it up and the conversation just seems to stop where people don't know what to say or, and I interpret that as like, I'm bothering them or, you know, I'm a burden to them. And so I don't bring it up. Um, so I don't know. I, it, it is definitely something that I still struggle with. And I think it's this huge, especially because it was, you know, it wasn't one time. It was years of my, you know, I've still spent more years in the abuse than I have out of it. Um, and so it's this huge part of my life that I haven't talked about. And so there are times where I, I do want to talk, you know, I do want to talk about it because I haven't, or I, you know, there are years and years and years that I just haven't talked about because of it. And so trying, trying to open a dialogue for this has been difficult. And I don't think I have succeeded yet actually at, um, you know, speaking about this with people who I'm, I'm close to because I don't know how to bring it up. Yeah. One of the harder things, I think the more you love somebody as well, the more close you are with them, almost the more awkward it can be to be this vulnerable and speak about this so closely because when somebody is so close to you, I think that this is this is in what I think goes on in my mind is I've got so much to lose by this person not reacting the way that I need them to. If this goes wrong in any way, this is a big loss for me. Whereas if you tell somebody that, you're less invested in or you don't tell anybody, then you protect yourself in a way. I, absolutely. I think there, there are people that I, I I absolutely want in my life. I cannot see my life without. Um, and so it feels high stakes to talk about this or to bring it up. Um, also because I think there are emotional, I don't know if you feel this with maybe your parents, but like they're emotionally involved in a sense. And, and so, you know, thinking about their emotions in this and, you know, is this something that they want to relive or re talk about? Um, even though it's, you know, my story or my life, like it's not my own. There, there are so many other people who, who have been on this journey with me and I'm so thankful for, but at the same time, it's, I think it's traumatic for them or something that they maybe have to come to terms with themselves being adjacent to this. I definitely don't talk about this with my dad. I don't, um, he doesn't want to talk about it at all. And it's not like if I did talk about it, that he wouldn't listen, but it wouldn't be the response that I wanted because he's not in a place mentally where he can do that and open up emotionally and be there. I think he harbors a lot of guilt. And I think that's exactly right for me. That is not a wound that I want to open for him. You know, as much as it is something that I went through, you're right. It's something that I protect him from in a way Mm -hmm. because I don't want him to be hurt. The same with my mom, but my mom does ask me questions here and there, but really indirect, maybe about the podcast or maybe about other survivors or um, about a contextual situation kind of thing. There's no direct questions. And because she feels grief about this, I very much don't, I don't openly talk about it. And I think it's funny because I have a podcast about it. (laughs) I, I openly speak about it to the world, but I won't talk about it really with them. And if they did want to have the conversation with me, I would, but I would find that incredibly awkward. I think there's something too about, I think I have two thoughts. I think one thing is like, I want for them to bring it up 
in a way. Like, I don't want to be the one bringing it up because then I feel guilty about bringing it up. But if somebody asked me, I would talk about it. So that's one piece, at least for me. In terms of talking about it with my foster mom, um, who I, I have so much, you know, the person I respect most in this world, I think. I do kind of, we haven't really talked about, so the, the, the my abuser, perpetrator, um, ended up finding where I, I lived and um, came in one day before school, I opened the door and he was there and he assaulted me again. Um, and um, this is, I think, the part that I is the diff- most difficult. Um, I was, you know, I was 18 at the time. I was an adult and here anymore. Um, and I text, I sent her a text message and I told her what happened. And, you know, only recently have we ever talked about it. Um, and I do kind of wonder what, you know, what are her thoughts about that? This is definitely a part where I find it's difficult to to figure out what's you know how to how to navigate that. That she wasn't there when this happened. No, she she wasn't in the city where it happened at the time. Okay. Um, and so I think it was difficult for me. I think as a person, she was the person I wanted to talk to the most in this world. Um, and again, you know, talking about how people react when you tell them, I think I wanted a specific response from her. And I don't know that that would have been possible in a different city, you know? I really feel that on a level that I've never really spoken about before as well, because I think that is really why I don't speak about it to my parents, because there is a specific response that I want and not getting that affects me to think about. Um, So I don't do it because I don't want it to not go the way that it has to go in my mind. Yeah. And it's it's funny. I I feel like I know her well enough that she would tell me, well, then just tell me what you want and I'll do it. Yeah. Um, and in my mind, that defeats the purpose. Like, <laughs> if I'm telling you what I want, then why are we doing this? But I think that's not genuine almost because, mm-hmm. yeah. But that is definitely a mental game that I play a lot of. Oh, I, w- I wish she would do this. And then, of course, she doesn't because how does she know what I'm supposed to, you know? how in the world do you know how to respond to something like this? And then I'm angry about it or I'm upset or I have all these feelings around it and we go around in circles like that for a while. Yeah, I definitely go through that mental gymnastics in my mind as well. Of And then you get kind of a little bit annoyed at yourself because you're angry at something that you've not done or you've not actioned in any way, but you're feeling a certain way and you've wound yourself up about it. So they're the ways. It's a vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> After you've gone, you've done all of this stuff, you know, you had that additional abuse and she wasn't there as well. Like this happened when you were an adult. Was was this something that that continued on into your adult life or or how did you, how did you escape? Like what what was this next steps for you? It sounds like it's it didn't just end. So that was that was luckily thankfully the only time um in my adult life that it happened. I interestingly I I did um, I did go to the hospital that day, but I went to the hospital. It happened the morning of my final chemistry exam for college, and I needed that exam for university. Oh, my God. Um, and so, you know, it happened, and I went to school, and I was like, I'm going to write this exam. Um, I need this exam for university. Um, and I walked into the school, and my one of my close friends in college um, – just was like, what's wrong with you? And I, I wasn't talking and I was like ghost white. And she took me to see a t- one of the teachers who I was close to. And I just sat in his office and he told me like, do you need, like, he didn't know anything at that point, but he was just like, 
do you need to go to the hospital? Like, what can I do for you? You know, knew some of the context around mental illness and like maybe was thinking that there was something wrong there. And I said, no, I, I need to write this exam. Um, and so he took me to the exam room and we started. And as soon as we started the exam, I looked down at the paper and I started crying and I could not pick up the pencil. And eventually the teacher who was invigilating the exam said, like, you got to leave, like you're, you're bothering the other students. Mm. Um, and so they took me out of the exam room and it took me to the hospital. But I was so focused on on that chemistry exam that when I, I, I waited all day around to see the psychiatrist who was following me at the hospital that they took me to. And I told him I didn't do my chemistry exam and I needed to get into university. So like what I need from you is to write a paper to say that like I wasn't able to. And I just focused on that. And I didn't tell him what was happening because I was so focused on like I need to make it to university and what I need is to write this exam. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, I didn't tell anybody at that point. Um, but didn't go back to my, there was no way I, I was returning to my apartment. Um, so stayed with a friend for a little bit. And were you um, living and, on your own at this place? It, like this wasn't yeah. a, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was living terrifying. in a tiny apartment, um, by myself. So terrified to go home and really kind of spiraled or had been, you know, the longest time in recovery from eating, from the eating disorder since I had, you know, for years now. Um, had, hadn't been in the hospital for about six or seven months and was feeling like I was getting my feet, you know, back on the floor. Um, and this completely shook my world again. Um, and, you know, fell back in a, a huge relapse stop, you know, really had a hard time. Um, and it was, it wasn't until months later that I went back to my psychiatrist and I told him, I said, you know, that day that I came in to get the chemistry paper, this is what happened. Um, and I didn't tell, I, you know, I had written a note to him um, to tell him because I knew I was going to be able to say it. And I gave him the note and he sat there and he read it. Um, and he told me, what do you want to do? You're, you know, you're an adult. And it was still kind of that mental game of if he was willing to go to that extent to hurt me, if I report it, will it be worse? You know, the fear, um, the fear. And so I didn't. Um, and I, I don't think that it's a never. I think it's a not for right now. Yeah. I, I know what the criminal justice system is like, and <laughs> I'm just starting to to have a life for myself. And I need that. I need that normalcy and I need this behind me. And like I was saying, like much earlier, I think the healing for me comes from the, the relationships I'm able to build and the friendships I have. And, and that is more than a conviction will ever give me. Absolutely. And so that, that's what feels right to me right now. And if there's one day where I, I think something different will feel right, then for sure. Um, but that's not, that's not where I'm at right now. I think there is a part of me that's still, you know, in fear to a certain extent. Um, and there's a part of me that, that feels like I want to get on with my life. And, uh, you know, I don't know how it is in Australia, but here convictions are, are tough to come by, one, um, and two, the sentences are not necessarily very long. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, saying that, you know, any number of years is worth how, you know, is worth the pain and suffering. I don't know. Like, I don't know that it would be worse to see a conviction that is so short and equate that to the amount of pain and suffering that I've been through. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, my perpetrator got two years um, and it was – you know, I did see him 
in the local area after. And these are just times where I've only started to navigate. You know, I was still a child at this stage. I had no protection over where he could go. Um, I didn't have any rights because he hadn't done anything to me again and he had served his time. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't, I don't feel like I can comment and say that the conviction meant nothing or the conviction in any way, because I don't know what it's like to not have one. Um, and I was one of the lucky few who did. And, you know, there's a part of me that feels incredibly lucky that that is, and that I have that validation behind me as well in terms of telling my story. There is a court case and there is a conviction there. So it's all, I do have a different level, I guess, where I feel super privileged and a bit guilty about that, that I got a conviction and most people don't, but it was an incredibly disheartening and one of the most invalidating feelings in the world for the criminal justice system to only give two years to somebody who sexually assaulted a child with the evidence that they had. (laughs) You can't quantify that. And I think, you know, the more and more I speak to survivors and the more and more I think about my experience, it is creating a new feeling of safety, creating friendships, creating an environment where you feel productive, creating, getting to a point where you don't want to kill yourself, getting to a point where you have value in your life or you have a good romantic relationship or you've got great friendships. Like this is what the goal is. It's not always to get the conviction and to, you know, truly be at the place. And I'll never forget the day that I woke up and I didn't want to kill myself. And that was the day that I knew I'd succeeded, not the day that he got the conviction. So, you know, but at the end of the day, what anybody wants in their life, we can't justify or tell that if somebody wants to go and get that conviction, then we'll stand by you. We love you. It's an incredible thing to do. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to though, that's not a weakness or anything. I think being focused on what you need is the strength. Yeah. I, I think that's an, an important point to drive home that you're not less of a survivor if you don't go through the criminal justice system or if if justice looks different to you or if you know recovery and healing looks different to you because I think the mainstream media is very much centered around getting a conviction and or trying to get a conviction and going through. And it's okay if you don't want that. Um, and it's okay if healing looks different to you. Yeah, I think that that's a message that's so important for survivors to hear. And figuring out what healing looks like to you is one of the hardest things to do, to figure out what you need, what type of therapy, what kind of friends you need to let go of. Mm-hmm. These things are all so difficult. And that's where I would say I would recommend people to focus on first before mm-hmm. anything else. Tell somebody that you love and care about or that you can trust like a psychologist or something like that as well. But know that your goal does not have to be a conviction in any way, shape or form. Your goals are defined by you um, and you can trust in yourself to know that you have a community of other survivors around you that that share that same belief with you. Um, maybe the people around you might not understand that, but there are people here who do. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things though that I I would recommend, and again, this is really personal. I did, you know, at the time see a lawyer, a lawyer who I had known, um, and who wrote things down, and who who knows of the evidence, um, and who absolutely like has all of it. If one day I do change my mind. 
Uh, and that could make, you know, that could be a friend or that could be a survivor advocate. But that is one thing that I, I did for myself at the time was confide in this lawyer um, and, and know that if one day I do change my mind, if one day I do feel so unsafe that I do want to go the criminal justice route, um, that I do have that option. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, by going to even being a friend, being somebody that somebody is disclosing to, um, you can be the one to write down notes. My One of my close friends called me the other day and she had told me she had just been recently sexually assaulted. And I just said straight away to her on the phone, I'm like, I'm here for you. Um, I'm going to write some notes down if that's okay. So I've written, you know, the date of disclosure, some circumstantial things that she had said in the conversation. I didn't record it, but I just let her know that that was happening. And I let her know that it wasn't for the reason that I'm going to go to the police. I'm not going to do anything without her permission, but it is there for her if she ever wants it. And that's for survivors to do themselves. If they feel like they can, they can seek out these different types of services, but also for the loved ones of survivors to be able to sit down, write down the things that you remember this person disclosing to you, make sure that you've got it there. If you do have evidence, make sure that you've got it safe just in case you can support them if they do want to one day. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on and and sharing your story. I'm so sorry that this that you, this happened to you and I'm so sorry that you had to go through this in your life. But I think at the same time, you are an incredible example of what it means to say that there is life after abuse. Um, I think that you've been able to do some incredible things and I'm sure that now that you've started this advocacy space and advocacy kind of journey as well, that you'll be doing so much more than you already do in the line of work that you do for other survivors. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. I think, yeah, if there's one message that I could share is definitely like it gets better. Um, and I know it's so cliche um, and I wouldn't have believed it at the time, but um, if there are people who are going through it right now, hang on and it, it, it's worth hanging on and it's worth those tough days. Um, eventually it does get better and brighter and the world starts to feel lighter again. Absolutely. Um, and if you do want to reach out to any of your local services, then I will link them into the show notes for this episode. Um, I've also created a survivor support network on Facebook. So if you'd like the link to the survivor support network, please get in touch with me on Instagram at reclaim me pod or at mad heat underscore. Um, there's a lot of resources that we can link through to you as well. So you don't, uh, the first step might not be going to the police or going to a, an advocacy service or a friend. Um, you can reach out to other survivors and we might be able to assist you in, in places that you can go um, and just have some genuine discussions. So for now, this is Reclaim Me signing out. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Hold up. What was that? 
boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.